I am so ready to, to preach this message because I think it's going to unlock Ecclesiastes for some of you who have really been struggling with it. Like, I know there's many of you in the room of like, thank God from whom all blessings flow that we are done with Ecclesiastes because it's just been the same thing over and over again, it feels like, right? And, and so this morning, uh, as I was studying this, and it, there's some things that clicked in me that have eluded me and not made complete sense of why this life matters and all these kind of things. And, and so I'm hoping that this message will do the same that it's done in me. So Ecclesiastes 12, we'll, we'll conclude 9 through 14. So going back to verse 1-1, where it all started, these have been the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, the preacher, which is the Hebrew word koalet, is translated Ecclesiastes in the Greek. And so he's written a bulk of this book. And I say a bulk of this book because in these last couple verses, we see a second person enter into the narrative. And so we had, uh, we, he was introduced in the beginning. We don't know who it is. But then at the end, he gives his recommendation of Solomon. But then he also gives his kind of commentary on the work of Solomon, his conclusion. So this, this is kind of the second teacher in the book kind of introduced at the end. It was also at the beginning. So unlike books of our day where we have all of the um, accolades and all the endorsements kind of in the front half of the book so that you'll buy the book or on the back cover. This is actually the endorsement at the end, which would be common to that literature. So look at verses nine through 10. He gives his commendation. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and pondered, searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write the words of truth correctly. So if we're going to summarize what Solomon has been saying this whole time, this is what we would boil down Solomon's message in this short sentence. This is my interpretation of what Solomon concluded. Life under the sun is incredibly difficult, and then you die. Does that not summarize Ecclesiastes like to this point? Like life under the sun, incredibly difficult, and then you die. Okay, so now... We, th- we have to think about what Solomon's life was like. Solomon, he had it all. He tried it all. He was in this endless search of finding meaning and purpose in wisdom. He, he pursued pleasure, work, wealth, power, relationships, and it all ended in the same place. It didn't satisfy. So he came to the sobering reality. If satisfaction doesn't last and it doesn't produce what it's supposed to, then what is the point? It's all vanity. And so he pursued wealth and collected stockpiles and pursued pleasure and gave himself over to every whim. And he went down the rabbit hole of everyone. He came to the same conclusion at the end that everything was meaningless because death. There was something that his mind his wealth and his resources could not solve a problem. He could not deal with death. There's no amount of money, there's no amount of intellect, there's no amount of resources that he could collect that would solve his problem with death. And so that rendered life meaningless in Solomon's eyes. The second thing that he noticed that rendered uh, life meaningless was the idea of injustice. So this came up many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. The wicked are doing evil And then you have the righteous pursuing good. And what happens? They both end up in the same fate. 
And so he couldn't reconcile injustice. So therefore he said that everything is meaningless. The rights don't get wronged. And then the third thing, if we're going to summarize the book of Ecclesiastes in this way, was our inability to discern what time it is. So Ecclesiastes 3, a time for war, a time for peace, probably the most famous of all passages in Ecclesiastes and, and beyond just the, just the Bible, it's used all over the place. But he, he said that you can't know fully what God is doing in beginning and end. And so therefore, it's meaningless. So with these things in mind, Solomon comes to the sad conclusion that there is no meaning in pursuing after these things to find meaning and purpose that will sustain is, is meaningless. And so he comes up with this idea. There is a better way of living, and he calls it carpe diem, which means seize the day, boys. Okay, So you've got seize the day about six different times that he says, go after it. It's better to pursue relationships. It's better than. It's kind of his better than passages. He says, enjoy life. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. Seize the day. And that's kind of where Solomon ends up. He unmasks the illusion that there is something in this temporal world that will satisfy your soul. And I think we would be wise this morning if we listened to his pursuits and what they, listened, they came up with. That in this temporal world, searching for things to satisfy our souls will not be found in wealth, money, relationships, power, pleasure. It won't. And so that is the message of Solomon. So what is the message of the second teacher that comes in these last four verses? Verse 11, the second teacher comes in, he comments on the wise words that have served us. And when he uses these, these words, it's, it's just so true. He says that these words have been given by this one shepherd. Now the S is capitalized in verse 11 because most translators and scholars agree that when it's talking about the shepherd and capitalized, it's talking about God as the shepherd. Psalm 23, Psalm 80, God is our shepherd. And so it's pointing to that. And then he says the words that Solomon have given us were like goads. So what is a goad? Well, it's a long stick that prods into cattle and gives pain to them so that they'll actually steer them in the right direction. Has Ecclesiastes not at times felt like someone was goading you? Is that how you say that? Is that a, is that a verb you can use? So it says, it, it says that they, you know, it invokes pain, prods and pokes to guide us in that way. It causes discomfort, quite literally, it causes pain. And for some of us, it was painful you know, sitting here in some of these messages in Ecclesiastes. But then he gives these concluding thoughts. Verse 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now, this teacher is encouraging his son to know what Solomon is doing. And in light of what Solomon has taught, he gives his commentary. Now, whether it was just his son or whether it was someone he was teaching, but he, I, I would say it this way, he was not just giving them under the sun wisdom. He was giving his son above the sun wisdom. With eternity in mind, act this way, live this way. And he boils it down to fear God and keep his commandments. So what does he mean by fear God? Believe he means establish a right relationship with the God who is the creator of everything. You should be in awe and trembling with who God is and what God is like. 
There's a humble awareness that to hear God and to hear his words is to obey his commandments. You remember when Lloyd went back to the Shema in Deuteronomy. Shema means to hear and it also means to obey. This is the same condemnation that he gives his son. When you have fear of God, it puts everything else in its right place. It's the Old Testament version of what Jesus says is first seek the kingdom and everything else will come into place. When Moses is summarizing God's expectation of his people for how to live in Deuteronomy 10, 12, it is almost identical to what the teacher says. So listen to these words of Moses. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. So why do we obey? Why do we, do, why do we walk in the ways of the Lord? It's for our good and for God's glory. So he goes on, that's his condemnation to his son in light of Solomon's words. And then he says this in verse 14. And I think this is the key that unlocks all of Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now Solomon had a major problem. He didn't have certainty or hope of life after death. Therefore, death gets the final say, and there is no hope beyond. In Ecclesiastes 3, though, Solomon says, 3.11, he says that God has planted eternity in the hearts of men, and this may point us a why Solomon and is explaining why all of us instinctively are asking the question, is there more? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? Every human being on this earth is asking those fundamental questions because eternity is written on our hearts. So death has been a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, it's come up over and over again. And in some ways, Solomon is raging against death because here is this king who can do whatever he wants with all the resources he wants, and he's the most skilled of anyone that's ever lived, and yet he can't solve this one problem. So he keeps raging against death. Now, let me ask you this question. When you hear the word judgment, I just want you in your mind, what do you think of? that God will bring everything into judgment. Just what, what, what goes through your mind? Let me give, give me a couple examples. What goes through your mind? Negative or positive? Accountable. Fear. Guilt. Reward. Daryl, sit over there. <laughs> so the reality is... The reality is, as many of us, when we hear the word judgment, we think negative. And I'm here to tell you that when we start to understand what judgment means in the scriptures, it's going to unlock everything in Ecclesiastes. Now, what is the job of a judge? The job of a judge is not primarily to do all punishment, but to make things right, to uphold and restore justice to reestablish right order of things. So the writer is alluding to the fact that one day God will bring into account all that has been done and render judgment. So therefore, death doesn't get the final say. Who gets the final say? God does. 
See, Solomon said death got the final say, but that's not true, is it? God gets the final say. So all things will be brought under judgment. Every act, all things will come under God's judgment. So everything is not meaningless then. Everything is what? Meaningful. Every act now has what? Meaning, purpose. Think about the judgment of Jesus. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross and what will he accomplish in his second coming? Let's talk about the cross first. Jesus, by living the life we couldn't, by becoming a perfect sacrifice, paid the debt we owe, sin was so serious that in order for it to be made right and for us to be able to be restored to relationship with God, God had to do what? Judge sin. And on the cross, God was taking on, the judgment of sin was taking place. Because of that atoning work of what Jesus did, living the perfect life that we could not live and paying the debt that we owed through his death, now through faith in Jesus, we now can be made right with God. We can have right relationship with God because sin has been judged and judged sin equals death no longer has the final say. Sting of death is removed in Jesus. The hope of eternal life is made to come to bear through what Jesus has done. This is the the term, theological term that we get justification. We were justified because of what Jesus has done, the judgment of the cross. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he did on our behalf is not just personal salvation. It's not just personal justification because Jesus, when he comes on the scene in the New Testament, what does he say? I have come preaching and proclaiming the good news, not just of personal salvation, but of the kingdom. The good news in the gospel of the kingdom. So this means that it's actually the reconciling not only us as personally to God, but with one another and all of creation being reconciled to God. Now, since the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, we always need to have the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, bring clarity about what's going on. Let's go to Colossians 1. This would be worth turning over to Colossians 1. This is going to explain what does judgment mean and what was Jesus doing, what was the Father doing on the cross, and what are the implications of judgment in that way. Colossians 1, I'm going to begin reading this. Verse 15. He is the image... He is the image of the invisible God. He there is Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness to dwell in him, and listen to what he did, and through him to reconcile, what? All things. To himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. What Jesus accomplished on the cross set in motion what will one day happen in all of creation where all of creation will be restored and renewed to himself because of the judgment that has taken place and death, the verdict of death is no longer the final verdict. So that is what is happening on the cross. Now judgment is also the central idea of Jesus' second coming. So when Jesus comes again, so this is the cross, the first judgment of Jesus. The second judgment of Jesus is when he comes again. It talks about that he is going to be seated on the judgment seat. God is gonna give him over to be judged. So judgment is a central idea of Jesus' second coming. And so if, if our minds are only thinking negative, again, we have to get out of that because the Psalms particularly talk about the day when justice will roll, when God will judge and set things back in motion the way that they were originally designed. He's gonna restore and recreate. And when it's talked about in the scriptures, when it's talked about in the prophets, it's talked about as this glorious day, a day to be celebrated, a day to look forward to, a day to long for. So if we're thinking about it of, oh, like fearful and like God's going to judge like everything I've done. We are looking at judgment way too small because we're looking at it just in the filter of individuality. God is going to recreate and restore all things. It's something to be anticipated. All of the wrongs that have been, all of the wrongs are going to be made right. Oh, what a glorious day a day to look forward to. Now, since Jesus has defeated death and death no longer has its sting, so that's what Solomon was raging against in Ecclesiastes, since death no longer has its sting, we do not fear death, but we have a hope that begins here and now. So what does that mean? It means that everything that we do in the here and now, living in the here and now, is in light of our eternal hope. It is never just temporary, it's in light of our eternity hope. If Jesus is the true king and his church is his bride, his people redeemed for himself, then he is establishing an alternative kingdom in the church as a way to live with God and show the world what he is like. So this new earth, when we talk about, we talk about um, escaping to heaven, that's not correct in the biblical framework. The new earth is going to have the new heavens come and join and God will dwell on the new earth here. So Jesus, by establishing his people, is establishing his kingdom. So our lives matter now. We join him in this recreation work. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about us. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. We have the old has passed and the new has come. And we now, because of what Jesus has done, are what? Ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors to what Jesus has done. That work happens in us and it happens through us by the renewing work of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit. And when you think about Genesis, what's happening in Genesis? Genesis happens, the creation of the world. Adam is doing what? He is working. He is co-laboring with God, doing work, and enjoying God's creation. That is what the new earth will be. So each of us has gifts and talents and resources and passions to contribute and steward in society. Why? Because we get to partner with the work that God is doing. Your work matters. 
So this, com- this commentary I read pointed out this week, tangibly, whenever we work toward bringing healing, peace, and fighting injustice, fighting temptation, we join in a regenerating work of the kingdom of heaven here. We fight for what will one day be a constant and eternal reality on the new earth when Jesus comes again and we dwell permanently with God. So this is so much more than this version of Christianity of just pray a prayer and try to be a good boy and girl until we escape to heaven. Like how many of you grew up with that? Of like, just, just hold out until you go to heaven and just escape the, the hardness of the world. This is so much more than that. Because we are showing our faith by the work that we do. We're stewarding what God has done in us through our obedience to him and our love for him. Others experience this new life in Jesus also. We're pointing in this kingdom, in this world, we're pointing to an alternative kingdom where Jesus is the true king. So no longer, no longer, think about this, no longer are people, their worth, value, and identity going to be based on how much they make, what they look like, or their social status. Because the gospel says they are image bearers. And so we, as the church, get to live out this new set of values as his people, and we carry those values to the places we work. We carry these kingdom values to the the relationships that we have. So we honor God with the work we do at work. We enjoy God. We build relationships in this way. Now think about when heaven and earth are coming together in Revelation. What happens in Revelation? You get these mental pictures, these illustrations. You have a lion and what? A lamb. And what are they doing? They're, they're walking alongside each other. You have a city that's being built of every tribe and tongue and nation. Every people group are now the family of God. And we see that in the church as well. There's a banquet that's happening. There's a celebration. There's a, a wedding, a feast that's going to happen. So whatever the church is doing now is painting a picture for one day will be our eternal reality. So this has so many implications. So what will be made right on the new earth and Jesus' second judgment, we, to whatever degree possible, live out these new values, this alternative kingdom in the church and on display for society to see. So today, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus brought to bear on the cross is shaping how we live life with God and with others. Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, what did he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we, as God's people, his church, have this awesome responsibility to point people to a future reality beyond what they can just tangibly see. That one day, when heaven meets earth and everything is recreated and judgment happens in the fullness, we will see nations come together, no longer separated by division or by skin color or by language or by any social status. There will be no divisions like that. So what should we do today? In light of eternity, in light of heaven, we should fight for that to be reality here on earth. What does it look like when heaven invades the here and now? When we see this, well, we're not divided up by politics. 
or economics. We're not divided up by how much we make or where our kids go to school or what neighborhoods we live in. See, in heaven, someone's worth is not fixed on those things. It's not fixed on the color of skin or social status. And so we pursue a kingdom, a kingdom community here in this church where we take care of one another. We display what it looks like to be a family together of where we see someone hurting, we help. When we see someone who has a need, we meet it. That actually paints a picture for the world to see what does it look like to go beyond just the values of this world. In our heated political divide, is that not what the world needs more than ever? People who would actually sit down and listen to you and have empathy and care and love and serve even if you disagree? Those are the type of values that the church begins to look out. What one day will be celebrated in full, we can actually experience and give a foretaste here. British theologian Leslie Newbegin says this, the gospel does not become public truth for society by being propagated as a theory or as a worldview and certainly not just as a religion. It can become public truth only insofar as it is embodied by the church, which is both abiding in Christ and engaged in the life of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that such an encouragement to us? Everything that we do for the Lord is not in vanity. No, it actually has meaning. It actually has purpose. The good news of Jesus is not just future good news, although our hope is a future hope. It is good news here and now because of the work on the cross. Everything is meaningful, not meaningless. If you have your Bibles, let's look at one last passage together. Then we'll consider implications. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's begin with verse 7. So in light of everything that we're talking about, everything having meaning, everything being shaped by that, let's read these verses. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, talking about our body, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying us the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 16. So though this world, let me just say this, though this world is hard and though this world is temporary and though our bodies are wasting away, we read this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is why we care and pursue that things that will one day 
be set fully right in the second coming and the judgment, fully restored. You see, your work matters. Your living matters. It is not meaningless. It is so very meaningful. No matter what you do, if it is done unto the Lord, it is not done in vain. And y'all, I'm so excited about our mission vision series because I want us to be a church that is pursuing what does it look like when we show the world a glimpse of what it looks like to live in light of eternity. A gospel-shaped life where our values are shaped in a different way, where we have an alternative king who we are pointing others to. When we are being renewed day by day, though our bodies are wasting away, we are pointing people to a hope that is beyond what they can see. And we do that tangibly by walking with God in this way. See, the book of Ecclesiastes was creating for us a clarity to see the work of Jesus on the cross. And if we would think about chasing after the good life as a bunch of little pieces that we're chasing after, these fragmented pieces, these temporal pieces that we're chasing after of our our looks or our finances or trying to find security in these things or pursuing pleasures, whatever those little things are, they're segregated and they're compartmentalized. And I think what Ecclesiastes was preparing for us was what does it look like when those clutters start to move away? How can we see Jesus move more and more clearly through what he's done on the cross? How can we see what God is doing in the midst of our pain, in the midst of some of our sufferings? How can we see the eternal weight of glory of how he's preparing us? And I think that is what he is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. So for me, what shifted is when I live in light of eternity, the question I ask myself and the question I ask as a church is where are we gonna be an ambassador for this alternative kingdom? And the answer is wherever God has placed you. Wherever God has placed you, you are an ambassador for this future kingdom. You are showing people tangibly what it looks like when Jesus is the true king of your life and those values begin shaping your life, you're treating people differently. You're fighting for what one day will be a future reality. You're saying, I wanted to invade here. It's worth fighting for here because I believe it will carry over into eternity. So how does the hope of heaven invading the recreated earth give you hope in what you're facing today? I hope you leave this morning with a hope that is more certain, a hope that is more secure, a hope that is more inspiring to face this day because Jesus is doing a renewing work. So in light of that, would you stand and sing as the cross becomes more clear for us this morning? was there the whole time and I think what Ecclesiastes was doing was pointing out these places where we're seeking life and when it all fades away we see what Jesus has been leading us to the whole time this is a way to send us out we reread the passage that we read today so we do not lose heart 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God, by your spirit, would you lead us as your people to live out your kingdom and point people to the hope that we have in Jesus. If you would like prayer this morning, we have a a couple up front that would love uh, to pray with you. If this morning some things clicked for you and you're saying, I want to know more about what it means to put my hope in Jesus, what he has done for me on the cross, we would love to talk to you uh, about that. You can talk to someone around you. Church, may we be a tangible reminder to the world that we live by a different set of values with a different king to point people to the true hope that we have. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.